0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, or maybe your scripture journal for the book of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 9, partway through. If you remember last week, uh, Matt talked to us about the transfiguration. So this is sort of a meanwhile story. We get to hear a little bit of what was happening um, while Jesus was up on the mountain with the other disciples. Um, and then the story picks up from there. So start with me in verse 14. I'm going to read the whole thing. We're going to kind of go through it all and then uh, break it down further as we go throughout the morning. So read with me. It says, And when they came down, the disciples, they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes arguing with them, and immediately. All the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked him, and and he asked him, what are you arguing with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were unable. And he answered them, and it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and death spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some of your translations may say prayer and fasting. Let me take a minute and let's just pray again over our time of of teaching this morning. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. And right now, God, I invite you to speak to us. I pray, God, that we could hear your voice through these pages, through these words, that it wouldn't be my voice, God, but it'd be your words speaking to us. And I ask, God, that you'd let them settle into our hearts and move us this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. So legend has it that in the early 1800s, the half-uncle of Napoleon Bonaparte, which was a guy named Cardinal Joseph Fesch, was in a Roman thrift shop. So he's going around popping tags, probably finding like secondhand togas, all that stuff, right? And as he's in this store, he notices this box. And on the box, there's a strange canvas top has kind of been retrofitted to this box. And he looks at it and he realizes that's not just a piece of canvas, that that's a piece of a painting. And so he grabs it, he buys it from the store owner, we don't know for how much, and he takes it home with him and he finds out that it is a piece of a painting by the one and only Leonardo da Vinci but it's only a section of this painting. Well, later on, as the legend has it, this cardinal Fesh, he goes to his shoe guy. He's got to get some new shoes or sandals, whatever they were wearing then. And he notices that the cobbler's stool that he would work from was covered with a strange piece of canvas. And lo and behold, it was the other section of the same painting that he had found by Leonardo da Vinci. And this painting and this legend surrounds, um, all this has become known as the painting by Leonardo da Vinci of Saint Jerome in the Wilderness. And I think we have the image of it here on the screen. Saint Jerome was a guy who is best known for translating the Bible into Latin. The Latin Vulgate of the translation was mostly done by this guy. And the story goes that he often would uh, spend time for penitence out in the desert, out in the wilderness on his own. And one of the stories says that in that time, like he met, however you would meet, but he met a lion and was able to sort of tame and help this lion. And the lion became like a pet to him. So you can see in this painting at the bottom corner there, there's a lion looking up at St. Jerome. And if you could see the whole painting, like over to the left side where his gaze is focused, or I guess it's your right, he's focused on what would be a crucifix. But one of the strange things about this portrait by Leonardo da Vinci is that it is unfinished. And you can see that there, much of this portrait is not even painted, it's sketched out. And so we have this painting that has captured the imagination of people for generations, because for one, there's that legend that it was cut apart and lost and pieced back together and just found. But also it's not finished, and we don't know why. We don't know why da Vinci didn't finish it. He was a a famous procrastinator. So maybe that's part of it, which I get, right? Like I got a lot of unfinished projects around the home. None of them are probably gonna be as incredible as this. But this portrait has fascinated people forever with all of its incompleteness, with all of its imperfections. We still see this portrait and find fascination in it. Now I gotta wonder though, like when this portrait's hanging in the museum, And at nighttime, everybody leaves the museum, and then all of the artifacts and other portraits and things come to life, as they do, as we all know that they do. I wonder what this painting sort of thinks of itself, right? But is it self-conscious? Like, because he's not complete. Like, does he feel halfway undressed? Like, is he wondering, like, ah, the Mona Lisa, she's smirking at me because I'm imperfect, right? Or this bald guy over there, he's screaming because he's looking at me, right? Like, this might be what's going on in this portrait's head because it is imperfect, but part of its intriguingness to us is that it's imperfect, right? It's imperfections bring us intrigue. And I find a little bit of that in this story today as we look at this father who meets with Jesus, this father who lays out all his imperfections at the foot of the son of God. And so I wanna go back through that story. We've got the disciples coming back with Jesus. We had Peter, Peter, James, and John up on that mountain, watch Jesus be transfigured. And then as Jesus comes down, this argument has arisen which I think maybe gives us a little insight as to why like, Peter took their, or Jesus took Peter up on the mountain with him, like why he chose him as one of three. I think it's because Jesus needed to keep an eye on Peter for situations like this. He's like, man, if there's an argument breaks out with the Pharisees while I'm away and Peter's there, like, I mean, Jesus would have been coming back down having to put ears back on people, right? And he's like, Peter, how many times do we have to go through this? Like, live by the sword, die by the sword. So Jesus comes back down, there's this argument between the disciples and the Pharisees, and you hear Jesus is just despondency it. In verse, 10, or verse 19, as Jesus comes down from this amazing experience, and then he just sort of groans out, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You almost hear Jesus' exhaustion by this whole thing. And we don't know if like it's, he's exhausted by the Pharisees constantly pestering him at every move, trying to trap him, or if he's exhausted by the, the disciples, or maybe a little just, man, we couldn't you guys for once like figure it out, right? Like can you can there be one problem that you guys can solve on your own? You just hear it in Jesus' voice. But then he says, bring me your son. And it's explained to him what has happened. He says, bring me your son. And what we find out, because this father brings his son to Jesus, the son that the disciples weren't able to cast out the spirit from, the son that the, the scribes were just probably standing there with their arms crossed. We, I don't even know if they would have tried to do something like that, but he brings Jesus, his son. And there we see the trauma that this father, that his family has been going through for we don't know how long, as the boy is brought to Jesus and we see him full on thrown into a seizure, a violent one we're told he's rolling around. We're told that he's foaming at the mouth. Now, a lot of scholars will will read this and identify it as epilepsy or a type of epilepsy. And we don't know that to be the case. And I wanna point out that there's nothing in this text or anywhere else in the New Testament or the Bible that would lead us to believe that epilepsy is always caused by some sort of possession. But that seems to be the case right here because we see Jesus cast the demon from the boy and that is what cures the boy. And and I don't know if you're like me, you get to these parts, like if you're ever reading the Bible to your kids and you're like, where should we read tonight? You're kind of flipping through the New Testament. I tend to skip the demonic possession passages, right? Like it's not great bedtime reading for your kids. It makes us ask a lot of questions. We're not comfortable with it. And I think sometimes in our society, we're especially unaccustomed to it in our culture. We don't see this a lot. So then when we run into it in scripture, sometimes we sort of want to explain it away or, or dismiss it because it makes us uncomfortable, because we're not used to it. But also I think sometimes like we might think it's more common in scripture than it actually is. If you look at the almost 40 miracles that Jesus performed in his time throughout the gospels, we only see five times that he's delivering somebody from demonic power. And so it's not like it was happening every day with Jesus. I'll get that question a lot. Like Jesus was doing this all the time. How come we don't see it as much in our culture? Jesus wasn't doing it all the time. It's just a, a portion of the miracles that he did. The most that he did was just healing people all the time. But we do know in all of that like discomfort that we have with these passages, we have to see from the Bible, the Bible shows us that this is a real thing. It's a present thing in our world. We just don't always see it and especially manifest it in that way. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we see right here that it's the thing we have to deal with. We see right here that it is something that is real, but we have no need to fear it, do we? Because every time we see Jesus face something like this, he always defeats it. Every time someone is brought to Jesus under some form of possession, Jesus defeats it. And so we've got nothing to fear of the spiritual evil powers in our world because he that is in us is greater than that which is in the world. And so Jesus looks at this father as this boy is on the ground before them. And he says, How long has he been this way? And we get from the father's answer, he says, Since childhood, you, you get the idea that maybe this boy is more of a teenager. And I begin questioning man, I wonder how long this has happened. I wonder if the boy was always mute. Did the father always have to deal with this? Is there a moment in his life where he remembers the last things his son said to him? Before this demon took hold of him, and now his son is mute. How many times has his father had to hold his child in the midst of a seizure, trying to protect him from other injuries? How many times has he had to pull him away from a fire or away from water? His family's just been in the midst of this torture. And I imagine that this father is exhausted. How long has it been since they have had a night of peace in their, in their household? And so he's heard maybe of Jesus' miracles and things he's done, other people he's healed. He brings his boy to Jesus Jesus says, how long? He says, since childhood. And then the father cries out and he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice he doesn't say, help my boy. He says, help us. He's in the midst of it. He feels it. You felt that too. If you've had a family member close to you that is sick, the whole house feels sick sometimes. So he cries out to Jesus, but then Jesus responds and I think it's ironic here what he says. He says, have compassion on us. Already, Mark has pointed out two other times where we've seen Jesus be compassionate. Once to a crowd of people in 634, where he sees this crowd of people like sheep without a shepherd. Later on, we see him feed 4,000 people. It says he has compassion on them because they were hungry. We know Jesus to be a compassionate man. And now this guy cries out to Jesus' as compassion and says, if you can do anything, help us. And then Jesus responds back, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And this is one of those instances I wish we had inflection, right? How does Jesus say it? Like, if you can, is he indignant? And he's like, who do you think I am? I'm the son of God. Like, of course I can. Or is he saying it kind of like with laughter, like if I can, of course I can, right? Like you've come to the right place, buddy. Or is he like with just power, like if I can and watch this and rolls up his sleeves, right? We don't know how Jesus responds to him. He says, if I can, he sort of puts the question back on him. Like, do you think that I can? And then Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes, which is a big theme all throughout Jesus's teaching. In the New Testament, we see belief or faith coupled with our, or we see miracles coupled with our faith, right? We see this coupling of belief and faith in Jesus's actions. In Luke 17, we have another verse similar to this. He says, uh, Luke 17, six, Jesus says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, which is a big tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you, which is a cool verse, right? But honestly, I don't like it because I can barely get my dog to obey me, right? Like, and now I'm talking about like having faith to move a tree, right? I've never been able to do that. I won't go into uh, the times that I've maybe tried, just sitting around. I don't know if anybody else just tried, like, oh, see if I got enough faith to move that shade tree over there. Like, never works for me, which means a couple of things. Either Jesus is mistaken that that's not true, or Jesus is lying, or I don't have the faith of the size of a mustard seed. And if I'm honest, I don't want to admit that. But I think that's probably what it comes down to is that my faith is too small to do the things that Jesus talks about. But we see this theme all throughout Scripture that we can do these amazing things if we have the faith. And so with this, the father responds back to Jesus, and I love his response. He cries out, some translations emphasize, he cries out with tears and says, I believe, help my unbelief, which is an amazing statement, an amazing prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. It's a little bit of a contradiction, isn't it? Which is Do you believe or do you have unbelief? And the guy's like, yes. Which I think we understand that, don't we? We have this feeling of I believe, but then there are things in faith, there are things about Jesus that are so great that we're like, ah, it's hard to believe. I believe, but man, I've tried to do some things and I haven't had the faith to do them. On good days, it comes easy to me. Like I believe, I got great faith on this day, but there are other days where if I'm honest, I struggle to believe. And it's something that we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about this, this doubt that sometimes we have. In fact, I'll, I'll talk with a lot of the students and every now and then a, a teenager will come to me and they'll talk about this very issue where they're like, I just, I don't know if I believe. Like I just sort of, I'm having doubts about their faith. And they come to me with this sort of guilt on their shoulders. Like they don't even want to tell me, like I'm gonna be like, how dare you get out of our youth group? You cannot doubt God. Like that's almost what they would expect from a person like a pastor. But I'm sitting across from them like, whew, tell me about it. Cause I feel it. I've had those feelings, but here's what I've seen is that when kids get to that moment where they're like, I'm just not sure if I, if I believe. Man, I love it because they're being real with themselves which is something we struggle to do in the church, to be real, to be honest. But these students are coming to me and they're saying, I don't know if I believe. Now, the reality is that they wouldn't be coming to me. They wouldn't be troubled by this feeling of having a small faith or or doubting God. They wouldn't be troubled with it if they didn't have some shred of belief in God. If they really didn't believe, they'd be like, so I don't believe, I'm out but they believe enough that they're troubled by their lack of faith, that they're troubled by the doubts that they have. And to me, that is real. We need to develop this freedom to doubt because sometimes it's just just hard. We're not perfect, right? We're that imperfect portrait. We're not complete in our journey of faith. Jesus hasn't finished us yet. We're still moving through the process. So I think we need to have freedom to be honest with ourselves and say, sometimes faith is hard. Doubts comes often, but the reality is if you're troubled by your doubts, if you're troubled by your lack of faith, you have some faith. And Jesus said, it just takes a mustard seed, right? Like maybe I'm not all the way to that full seed even yet, but we have a shred of faith and we see that in this guy's prayer. I believe he has to believe something, right? Because he came to Jesus and that's every prayer. Even if we're pouring out our doubts to God, which we see this as an example that we can do this as believers. We also see the full book of Psalms, people crying out to God, talking about their doubts in Him, talking about their struggles to have faith in Him. We see this all throughout Scripture, but know that to talk about God, we're admitting in some level that we believe in Him, right? So you can confess your lack of faith to Jesus because to talk to Jesus is some amount of faith in Jesus. And that's what we capture here in this idea of, I believe, help my unbelief. There's parts of me that struggle. I don't know if I can make it through this crisis. You've told me these promises, I'm attached to those promises, but I just don't know. And that's where this father is. And it is refreshing honesty, because we see in this that doubt is not denial, but that doubt is development. And I think that's true for us as well. Our doubt is not a denial of Jesus. It's a step in the development of our faith. At least that's what I've seen with these teenagers because now they begin working through their faith. It's not their parents anymore. It's not just what I've talked to them on on Wednesday nights about. It's them asking themselves, do I believe this? Do I have the faith it takes? Can I trust this Jesus? Doubt becomes development in our faith. And we get a great contrast with this father and the disciples. The disciples who the whole time, it seems as if they believe that they can do it, right? They've got faith, but I wonder if they've got more faith in their abilities than in God using their abilities. Because at the end of this, in verse 28, his disciples ask him privately, they, they get aside with Jesus after all the crowds kind of dissipated and they say to Jesus, why could we not cast it out? They don't say to Jesus, why didn't God use us to cast it out? How come we didn't have the power of God to be able to do this thing? They said, why couldn't we do it? I wonder if they had faith in themselves. And then Jesus says, it's only by prayer and fasting. Those are two things that force us to rely upon God, right? Praying, asking God for something that we need, fasting, denying our bodies from what we think it needs to rely on God. And so I think the disciples were trying to do it just in their own abilities. And then we got the scribes, the religious leaders there that are just like, they they have faith in their tradition, right? And here the disciples come with a new tradition. They're like, well, that's not gonna work. Our way is the way that works. This guy, it's helpless for him. It's probably because of his sin or his father's sin or somebody in his family. So they're believing in their tradition. The disciples are believing in themselves, which if you are like me and you grew up in the 90s, you know what that feels like, right? Belief in self. I mean, that was every movie when I was a kid. Growing up, I mean, if you watch a sports inspirational movie from the 90s, that's the main message Just believe in yourself, right? Just think about, think about um, Mighty Ducks. They just had to learn to believe in themselves, right? And then they could win the hockey game. Little Giants, they just had their ragtag bunch. They just gotta believe in themselves. Little Big League. The baseball team just had to learn to believe in themselves. Angels in the outfield. It wasn't the angel at the end that was carrying the ball. He did it himself. He just had to believe in himself. All this, Aladdin, Aladdin had to believe in himself that he's really like royalty. He's better than a prince. Those were all the messages in the movies when I grew up was believe in yourself. And we have a generation of people that have now become adults and we've believed in ourselves our whole lives. And then we get to adulthood and we're like, ah, I've let myself down, right? Like I couldn't do it. I I thought I, I believed in myself a lot. And I think I can't do it. Today, they've kind of woken up to that idea. And all the movies, if you watch today, it's not about believing in ourselves. It's about believing in each other, right? Finding Nemo, the dad had to trust Dory, right? Uh, Frozen, Elsa and Anna, they had to trust each other. Zootopia, these animals, we just gotta learn to get along. The Fast and the Furious franchise, it's all about family, right? We gotta believe in each other. This is the message from our culture that we can do it whether it's us as a group or you as an individual, that we can do it. But the message of Scripture is the opposite. The message of Scripture is that we can't do it. Like this father, he wasn't able to heal his child. He couldn't fight the demonic forces on his own. He wasn't enough. He had to come to a real power, and that is Jesus. In the Bible, this idea of self, it's often talked about as the flesh. Romans 7:18 says this, "'For I know that nothing good dwells in me, "'that is in my flesh.'" For I have the desire to do what is right, but I can't carry it out. Anybody? I mean, that's a great life verse right there. Like you don't hear people quoting it a lot, but we feel it. 1 Peter two eleven says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, of the self that wage, against, wage war against your soul. John 6, Jesus said, it "Is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, the self is no help at all. The words that I have spoken though, they are spirit and life. Belief in self. It's gonna lead us astray. Belief in self isn't enough. It's gonna leave us powerful against the spiritual powers of evil in our lives. And this is where the father realizes it. And this is where we see contrast. The only person in this section that we read about admitting to weakness is that father. The disciples didn't admit their weakness. The Pharisees, the scribes, they didn't admit where they lacked. It was the dad. He said, I believe help my unbelief, he lays it out before Jesus, which is an amazing thing because that is the first step to salvation, admitting that we can't do it on our own, admitting that we have messed up, admitting that myself is not enough, I can't defeat the forces of evil in the world against me, I can't defeat sin, I can't defeat death on my own, admitting I don't have it together. And that's what his father does. He says, I don't don't believe enough. Help my unbelief. That's the first step to salvation. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, if we admit our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The father had doubts. He had imperfections. But he brought it to Jesus, who was perfect. And then Jesus heals in the midst of his doubt, his little bit of faith was enough, and Jesus healed his son. And there's a moment where they think the boy is dead, and people are like, oh no, he's dead now. Like, maybe Jesus killed him. Like, what happened? And so that chain of emotions where there's been this drama, and now maybe a dead child there, and it gets really real. But then Jesus lifts down and pulls him back up, and the boy is okay. And He's speaking. And he's not having seizures anymore. He's healed. The faith of his father combined with the work of Jesus in the midst of his father's doubts brought new life to this child. So we have to take a sign from that and learn that we can take our doubts to Jesus. We can take our imperfections from Jesus or to Jesus and know that he takes it from there. We can say to our God, I believe, but I got a lot of unbelief. And here's the awesome part is that God takes it from there. In fact, the whole Bible, or not the whole Bible, a lot of places in the Bible talk about this very idea that you can bring your doubts to Jesus. Romans 12, 13, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of us. That right there shows us that our faith doesn't come from us, that God gives us that faith. What we lack, God provides. 1 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit. And in that, he adds faith to the list, saying to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. Your faith doesn't have to come from you. It comes from God. Jesus will help our unbelief. And so I don't know where you are this morning, but here's what I want you to see is that our admission, when we admit that we don't have enough, when we admit our doubts, when we admit our imperfections to Jesus, our admission is that first step to submission, that first step to the next step of salvation, which is believing that Jesus is Lord, that he is King, the Son of God. And so admission of all of our imperfection is the first step to submission, saying, man, I don't have it together. I need somebody else with me. I need Jesus to help me. It's that cry if I believe, but help my unbelief. And so today, I don't know where you are, but we're, we're gonna move to communion. And I want these thoughts to be in our heads as we move to communion. And so I'm gonna invite the band back out because they missed my cue verse. 1 Corinthians 12, nine, band. I'm gonna invite them back out and they're gonna play for us. And as we move to the tables, we got tables at the areas of the room, two in the front and two at, sort of at the back. You're gonna find more than just the communion baskets there you're gonna find some markers and a piece of paper. And as we come to communion today, I want you to recognize in your life, what is it that I need this communion for? Why is it that I need Jesus's body broken for me, his blood poured out for me? For you, you can maybe just think of that fill in the blank. Jesus, I believe, but help my blank. I need you, Jesus, help my doubt, help my unbelief, help my bitterness, help my pain. Help my fear, help my incompleteness, my incompetence. Jesus, help me defeat myself. What is that for you? So as we approach the communion table this morning, I wanna ask you to fill in that blank and you can just write it on one of these pieces of paper. And so give each other some time to do this. We're gonna play a song. And as you grab your communion cup, why is it that you need Jesus's death for you today? Whatever that may be, whatever that prayer to God is, I'm gonna invite you just to write that on those papers. So as we move to communion now, let me pray for us and I'm gonna invite you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have stepped into our darkness, that you came down into our mess. And God, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our unbelief, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our imperfections, God, you gave us your perfect son. And God, though we on our own were not enough, you said we were worth it. Though we can't do it just believing in ourselves, our self will always fall short. God, you said we were worth it to send your son to die for us. And so we thank you for that. And so we approach the communion table this morning as a people who are not perfect, but a people who are on a journey of perfection. Of people who are not a complete portrait yet, God, you're still working on us. And God, we have areas of doubt, of bitterness, of anger, of pain, of sin, of addiction. And so God, this morning we cry out to you. We believe, but help our unbelief. We believe, but help us with this thing that holds us back from you. Help us with this thing that has become a thorn in our lives. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. And thank you, God, that we can turn from the communion table, having written down our struggles and look to you, our perfect creator, that we can reflect on our imperfection and see Jesus, the picture of what we get to become, the perfect savior, free of sin and free of death. We get to be that God because of his death for us. And so God, be with us now as we approach the communion table with that in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can move to communion.